Let all the people say amen is right. Thank you, choir, for that offering. Friends, we have been looking at parables the last several weeks from the lectionary, and the lectionary are appointed texts on a three-year cycle that are used in many churches, and for these weeks this fall, we're using, uh, we're using the lectionary for, as our guide for our sermons. I mention that in part because this parable that I'm about to read, our text that I'm going to read now, is one that I will admit when I first read it is one that made me a little bit uncomfortable. And in fact, in my first writing of my sermon, my first thing I was going to say is that if this text makes you uncomfortable, you can feel free to get up and leave. And then I thought, that doesn't work, and it would be awkward because I'd be leaving, and then we'd have this time of pause that wouldn't work. So friends, let us go into the uncomfortable text together. And may God bless to us this reading and our hearing of it. We are in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. Listen to the word of God in verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm. A great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks indeed for your word for us this day, that we might reflect upon it, and that you might speak to us something new this day, a way that we can walk away having been nourished, fed, and transformed. Amen. A word about parables. You have been, again, hearing sermons on parables the past few weeks, and each week we're layering our little bit of 
introduction or uh, further introduction to the parables. And anyone who has grown up in the church has heard parables, right? Has spent time in the church, has heard parables, and many of them the very popular parables that we, uh, many of which we can recite from heart. Parables in particular, these portions of Scripture where Jesus teaches in this format, they were designed to be stories that are open to interpretation. In fact, not only are they open to interpretation, they need interpretation. They need a lens. Your lens and my lens, our experiences of our lives to help us to hear and understand the parables. And we also bring with us our cultural context, where we live, where we're from, what our community of faith is like. And this was the same for those first hearers of the parables, those to whom Jesus was talking. Like any story or lesson, we hear the message in our context and it influences how we hear the parable and perhaps even what we take away from it. In a few instances, in a few of the parables, Jesus explains himself pretty clearly. He specifically says what the various images mean and why he's telling people to act in a certain way. He explains himself. He gives the moral of the story. And it's almost as though in those stories, the the writer of the gospel and Jesus want to be abundantly clear. And so they take the metaphor and they end it. But in most parables, Jesus gives us just enough information to make us ask questions. We leave with more questions at the end than answers. And it's in those questions that we begin to have the room for thought, to bring our intellect, to bring our experiences into the text. And so, yes, you can't always listen to a parable and expect the truth to be obvious. Or I'd encourage you to at least not limit yourself to what seems to be obvious. Jesus has given us a gift in the form of these stories, and the gift is one that we have to unpack, follow like a treasure map, dig a little deeper as we seek to find where Jesus is leading us. Jesus invites us into these stories as we begin to ask what the parable means for us. Theologian C.H. Dodd wrote nearly a century ago that a parable arrests the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaves the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. I love that. Basically, Dodd is saying that parables typically aren't stories where there's a tidy moral at the end, a little nugget you can walk away with. So the invitation then, when we're listening to these words of Jesus, is to try and understand what our new reality, what our new reality might be when we hear Christ's word for us? What's the shift that we are being invited to have in our lives, in our minds, in the way we see the world around us, and most significantly, perhaps, in the way that we live in the world, the way we engage with others in the world? In this morning's gospel lesson, Jesus is telling a parable about two men, two men who seem to know one another, Every day this rich man walks past the poor man who's laying in front of the rich man's gate. The rich man knows this man's name is Lazarus. Interestingly, this poor man named Lazarus is the only person in any of the parables where we are told a name. He's the only one who's named. This man, Lazarus, who's laying on the ground covered with sores, longing to eat, 
dismissed by the rich man, Lazarus is the only one given a name. And importantly, the rich man knows his name. I think that's interesting because despite knowing his name, that rich man had to step over and around him every time he left that gate. Every time he went in and out of his home where our text says the rich man feasted sumptuously every day. The verb used here, feasted, it doesn't just mean that he ate or even ate well. It means that that he ate like it was a festival, like it was a holiday every single day. As you can see in this parable, we're being taken to the extremes, right? So each day when he leaves, he looks at Lazarus, he steps around him, but he doesn't see him. Like everyone else, he doesn't see him. Lazarus just sort of fades into the backdrop. The only ones who really saw Lazarus were the dogs who were licking at his sores. So we have these two men, and they both die, Lazarus and the rich man. This text is a little strange here because the rich man is buried. Perhaps there were people to bury him, family. But maybe because there was no one to bury him, Lazarus is taken up by angels. Remembering that this is a parable, it's important here to point out that these images from this parable are not intended to be imagery of the afterlife that Jesus talked about. This isn't a text about heaven and hell, or about salvation, or even really at all about what happens after death. Luke is using imagery from the culture here. He's using this imagery to further the parable lesson. And remember, whenever we're reading a parable, parables are intended to be lessons about how we live our lives now, in the present. Those hearing this parable would have known this, and they would have understand the use of these images from the contemporary culture. And this is important to recognize, because otherwise, without recognizing that, this text could be used inappropriately as an analysis of heaven and hell, or even a question of what gets you in and what doesn't. And it's not meant to be that. This is not meant to be a scary text to clobber you into shedding all your possessions to avoid a fiery furnace. I probably should have led with that. (laughs) But it can be tempting to read this passage that way, especially because of the imagery, especially because after they're both dead, the rich man is in misery because of the way that he lived his life or the way that he didn't live his life, the ways that he used the riches he had, the way he lived. So it seems obvious that the message of this parable is that we should turn from our evil ways. We should do good things. But this isn't all that's going on here. Absent from this parable is any sort of judgment. It could be assumed for sure. We can assume by the nature of the condition in which Lazarus finds himself and the rich man finds himself, it could be assumed that there's judgment. But there's no explicit judgment. Jesus nor Abraham say bad things about the rich man. They don't call him wicked like we saw in last week's parable or use other adjectives to judge him. And also, interestingly, there's no indication that God or Abraham, even 
were the ones deciding the fate of the rich man. What happens is that the rich man's condition after he dies is shown to us. And when it is shown, it is clear that the rich man's heart had grown far from the heart that God designed him to have, a heart of compassion and love and humility. Because you see, we are designed by God to bring love into the world. As ones created in the divine image, created in the image of a loving God, we are designed to bring that love. And when we depart from that design, we call that sin. Rabbi Harold Kushner puts it this way when describing the concept of sin in the Jewish tradition. He writes, in the Jewish thought, a sin is not an offense against God, an act of disobedience. A sin is a missed opportunity to act humanely. And so when we become overcome by sin, we are in agony. Not later, not in some sort of cosmic judgment, not after death, but now, in the present. When we are in agony, we seek to separate ourselves from God and we grow further from being in tune with our design, our purpose. And that rich man finds himself confused. He knows he's miserable. And his first inclination is to say, I don't want my brothers to experience this. So he asks Abraham to send Lazarus. By the way, how interesting is this, right? He asks Abraham to send the very man he seemed to have no purpose for in life, the man he ignored and stepped over, the man he never saw. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them, to change their action. He wants his brothers to see Lazarus, the one that he never saw. I wonder, though, what exactly he wants Lazarus to say to his brothers. What's the message? I also wonder if perhaps that's why he doesn't go himself, to bring the warning himself. Maybe he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what he himself would say, and so instead he asks Abraham to send Lazarus and Abraham will have nothing of it. Abraham says, they've had the law. They've known. They've known the teachings of their tradition, which has been clear to care for those who have less, to care for those in need. The scriptures have been clear for centuries about the treatment of the poor, so why bother warning your brothers? Now, there's some context here about this parable that is helpful in understanding it. One of the questions I always ask when looking at a parable is, who was the audience at the time Jesus was teaching? As much as I've said that parables are uh, designed for us, that we are the audience, Jesus was speaking to a live audience at the time. And in Luke 16, Jesus is speaking primarily to the Pharisees. Throughout Luke's gospel, and really throughout all of the gospels, there's a somewhat confusing representation of the Pharisees. I won't go into all the complexities, but whenever we see Pharisees come up in Scripture, it's helpful. We benefit at looking at how they're being presented in that given gospel and in the context in which we are reading. 
In this part of Luke's gospel, these religious leaders, the Pharisees, are watching Jesus very closely. They're religious leaders. They're also powerful people. They're wealthy. And they're worried about their own well-being, and they're worried about their power. And so they are watching Jesus, and and they're nervous. Not only are they nervous, they're waiting. They're waiting for Jesus to make mistakes. When Jesus reaches out to the outcasts of society in chapter 15, it's the Pharisees who say, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. They are despising Jesus. And in response, Jesus begins these parables that we've been looking at the past three weeks. And right after those parables, the ones we've been looking at, Jesus, or Luke writes this, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of this, and they ridiculed him. Jesus has gone right to their source of their power. He's gone right to their money, and he's gone right to their actions. Remember, these were the religious leaders, though. They knew the law. They had studied Scripture. They were experts. And so Jesus knew that the Pharisees should have known better. They should have known better because as they let their wealth separate them from those who had need, they knew, they knew that they were living counter to the Scripture. Robert Frost's poem, Mending Wall, opens with the line, something there is that doesn't love a wall. Frost wonders in the poem why it is that people divide and separate themselves. He writes, on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. The divisions we create, they bring us comfort. And we build these divisions in our lives. Sometimes we build them implicitly with the biases that we develop Sometimes we build the walls when we avoid eye contact or walk to the other side of the street. We build the walls when we ignore people and their needs. We build the walls to make ourselves more comfortable. But in that comfort, in the comfort of our walls, we grow more and more distant from living into our created purpose in the image of God. And even more so, We build the wall between us and someone who is also made in God's image. And so we limit our understanding of God. For if they are made in God's image, like we are made in God's image, we are limiting our ability to understand something of God when we limit our ability to understand them. Frost writes, Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out. Like the gate of our rich man, the walls we put up in our life, the walls to protect us, to make us more comfortable, but also the walls we don't even know we've built, the walls of our biases, our judgments, our ways that we exclude others from our lives. These very walls might just be protecting us, yes, but also separating us from God. Throughout Scripture, Jesus tells us that he is Lazarus. 
Jesus tells us that he is the one who is hungry and thirsty and the one who is cast out from society. Jesus is the one that we pass by and ignore. He is the one that we call other, the one from whom we separate ourselves. When we build the walls of our lives, we're walling out Jesus. And so it is when Abraham tells the rich man that his siblings are beyond help, what he's saying is that they've already heard the message and they've still chosen to ignore it. On some level, we can relate. We know you can't spend much time in the church without knowing that we are called upon to love others. Jesus makes it clear throughout Scripture, love God and love others. Care for those less fortunate. Over and over again, we hear it. Over and over again, these Pharisees heard it, but they weren't getting it. And so Jesus comes down with this parable to say, hey, listen, I believed what I said. I meant what I said. And not only I, but God has meant what God said for the last centuries of our history. These Pharisees know what the law says. They know God's directive to love others and love God, and it's that simple. They don't need a threat of some future agony to get them to change. What they need is to recognize that in the present life, in our present life, the life we're given now to live and breathe, we are called to find joy in the ways that we can use what we have to love those whom Christ loves. So maybe the parable is simple. Maybe it's a little more straightforward. It may not be about what happens after I die, but it is most certainly about what happens while I live. Professor Amy Jill Levine, a Jewish New Testament scholar, writes about parables that Jesus knew that the best teaching concerning how to live and live abundantly comes not from spoon-fed data or an answer sheet. Instead, it comes from narratives that remind us of what we already know, but we are resistant to recall. And so that's what we do, friends, when we come here when we come to worship, when we walk alongside others in the church, we come here to over and over again return to this place, return to the cross, return to worship, to struggle alongside and with others, to meet Jesus on the journey as we walk with others and seek to be shaped into the people, shaped into the people who live Christ's teachings in all that we do, who seek to help one another to see Christ in each other, to see Christ in the world, especially in the world where there is need, and especially, friends, in the world, in the people we don't easily see or the people we fail to see. For it is in seeing them, in living with them, in being near them, that we know God. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.